Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and you are listening to With Friends Like These, the podcast about difference, about uncomfortable conversations, um, about the things that we have to deal with in this new world of ours. Um, I have two conversations this week. One is with Jeff Chu, who is an old, old friend of mine, an author of uh, Does Jesus Love Me?, which is about his pilgrimage across America as a gay a Christian evangelical to find some kind of answers about the faith he grew up with and the person he is today. We did that in front of a live audience, so that um, should be a little different. We took a bunch of questions and just fair warning, it got really Jesus-y up in there. So if that makes you uncomfortable, um, you can fast forward um, from Jesus to Apocalypse because uh, the second part of the program is a talk with our friend of the pod, uh, Rick Wilson, the erstwhile Republican attack ad maker and current never Trump stalwart who discusses sort of the week's news and um, kind of the, the what the fuckness of what's been happening in the White House and how conservatives have been reacting to it. Rick, of course, is still writing in the front of the never Trump uh, movement and has not backed down an inch and does not see any comfort uh, in some of the flip flops that Trump has made. In fact, I think uh, for both Rick and myself, it just scares us even more. But first up is Jeff, and uh, enjoy. So I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These. So this is a show about difficult conversations. It is about how politics complicates relationships and how relationships complicate politics. And Actually, Jeff Chu is one of the people I thought of when I was putting together this show, because he's the author of Does Jesus Really Love Me? A Gay Christian's Pilgrimage in Search of God in America, which is exactly the kind of complicated identity and complicated set of relationships I felt like this show was, was built to explore. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So um, my, my spoiler alert, the answer to the first question, does Jesus really love me? I believe you did settle on. I would say yes. Yes. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the second question, the search for God in America, that seems to have been left a little more open. I think I found a lot of different gods in America. Yeah, and not the Neil Gaiman, like, Norse ones, but more the... I mean, those are appealing in their own special way. That's true. Uh, and, but you basically, you, you start, found not just one god, but many gods, and you, I want to thank you for calling what you did a pilgrimage, because I always get asked about my spiritual journey, which is a term I hate. Um, and so I'm going to start telling people it's more of a pilgrimage. So it's been four years since the book came out, and I guess the news is the pilgrimage didn't stop. No, if you look up pilgrimage in the dictionary, it says a journey to a holy place. And I wonder if for many of us, it's important to reframe that, because for me, that whole traveling, that has been the sacred ground, is being able to identify the pain and the joy in the everyday. It's not about like going to Jerusalem for me or going to Rome or going to some other place to pray. It's just finding some kind of meaning in the everyday shit that we have to deal with. Uh, so <laughs> speaking of everyday shit, I'm in seminary now. <laughs> and, 
And I think that's what happens when you start asking big questions is you have to confront some answers that you don't necessarily foresee, which you understand as a journalist. Mm -hmm. And that's actually sort of an interesting transition right there uh, because you you definitely started this book coming from a, a place as much as a journalist as any other kind of seeker. You were a general assignment journalist. We actually met each other in another era when Time Magazine... It still exists, I think, but <laughs> but it, when Time Magazine was incredibly, like, it was, you know, the official magazine of your dentist, um, and everybody read it, and Jeff was there, and you wrote all kinds of things for them, and, and when you started the book, you kind of were looking at it from through the eyes as much a journalist, but you've ended up in a different place. I think I was afraid to look at the intersection of sexuality and Christianity from too personal a standpoint. For me, there was too much at stake. I hadn't sorted through the questions, so I used my journalism as a way to tiptoe into that messy, messy thing. And over time, through other people's stories, I got some invitations to look at my own, and that was pretty awesome. It was liberating. It was being able to follow in the footsteps of other people who had done much harder work than I had done. So how did you make the decision to just to dive in and, you know, shift completely from someone who was using journalism as a sh- kind of a shield almost, I'm thinking, and, and keeping a distance from the what was the real question for you, to diving into that question on a full-time, everyday shit basis? Well, for the record, and for my husband, I'm still working. <laughs> Sometimes Tristan is worried that I've given up journalism entirely, <laughs> right. and I haven't. Uh, Most recently, I believe you wrote something for Modern Farmer, which, working together at Time Magazine, I would not have predicted for you a byline in Modern Farmer. uh, Living with myself, I would not have predicted for me a byline in Modern Farmer. But here we are, again, uh, asking questions uh, that leads us to weird places. I think... You never know when the seeds are planted. Oh... I I think seminary was something that had been at the back of my mind. I had a teacher in junior high who I hated for one particular reason. She told me at the end of eighth grade, I am praying every day that you would become a pastor. Now, my grandfather was a pastor. My uncle, exactly. (laughs) Now, I was not allowed as a good Christian boy to say that, but that doesn't mean I didn't think it. And... I didn't want to be in that quote-unquote family business. I saw what it did to my dad. Because you come from a family of people who were pastors and Bible school teachers. Exactly. My grandfather, he was a great preacher. My uncle baptized me. And my dad was a deacon in church. This is what you did in our family. And I knew then that I was different. And I wanted to be different in multiple ways. And so I ran away from this for a long time. And... After working on the book, uh, I started quietly, secretly Googling seminaries, <laughs> which is super dorky, but whatever. Yeah. Did you have to hide, hide your search history from your husband? Well, like, so this, is that this is the story. Weird. So we don't share a computer. I, no, I was looking at porn, I swear. <laughs> I wasn't Googling seminaries. I was looking at porn. <laughs> About, uh, I guess it was... 
uh, maybe two years ago now, is that right? Um, he knew I was struggling with journalism. <laughs> he really liked this thought of me Googling seminaries instead of gay porn. You're welcome for the gift. So we were Hiding at dinner it. one night and... Uh, God, I think I'm addicted to Googling seminaries. <laughs> Yale Divinity School has a great website. Yeah. Uh, I read it just for... I, I just read, the, read it for the articles. Yeah. <laughs> so we were at dinner one night and he knew I was trying to come up with a plan for my career. I was at Fast Company at the time and I was kind of struggling. I wasn't interested in writing celebrity profiles. There was a lot about like Gwyneth Paltrow and the success of Goop and it's just not <laughs> compelling to me. Not filling the hole in your soul with Goop. Apparently not. Yeah. So uh, we were at dinner one night and he said, are you ready to talk about what you want to do next? And I said, no, I'm not. He said, okay. And then he was quiet for a moment. And then he said, I just want to say one thing. I'm not going to be a very good preacher's wife. And I flipped out. I was like, what did you say? We don't share a computer. He doesn't have my password that I know of. <laughs> he doesn't have my password to my phone, which is different. And not I not could not. Do you have some not. trust issues? Or? That's for another episode. <laughs> he just knew. He knows me better mm -hmm. than probably I know myself. And there was something beautiful in that affirmation. So we're weird. So a couple weeks later, I sent him a memo about uh, the plan for does. my career. Yeah. yeah, sure. Do you not send your husband memos? No? Okay. And one, one part of the plan was to write more meaningful stories, stories that I just really had shied away from because I didn't think they were commercial enough. Mm -hmm. And they're probably not. But then another part of the plan was to start thinking seriously about seminary. And I was so scared to send it to him. You know, when we met, I didn't even go to church. Mm. We met on Match.com, and I was a journalist. And his dad was a journalist. And he understood the life of a journalist. He wasn't religious. He would go to Mass occasionally. Uh, and he sent back one line, and it was so powerful for me. It said, I'm so proud of you. Mm. This sounds like a great plan. And he's just walked with me every step of the way. I think a pilgrim's journey solo is almost impossible to sustain. Well, you're never really on that journey alone, but it also is good to have someone literally holding your hand. And not Are you trying to out-holy me right now? <laughs> a little bit. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm just, you know, there's no, no one as zealous as a convert. I'm more recent than you. But... You know, your marriage actually plays a role in your story um, about the book and about you coming to terms uh, with your faith and your sexuality and your family coming to terms with your faith and your sexuality. Um, in listening and reading interviews with you after the book came out, you, people would always ask you what your family thinks. And your answer then was, they don't really approve, they didn't come to my wedding, but... And I thought this was really, really a lovely sentiment. You said, but, you know, my relationships in my life is, is a better argument for them, is a better way to convince them than any amicus brief. Made. So now it's been four years. Do you wish you'd written an amicus brief? Or, or where are you with them right now? We have a lot of wishes, right? But the reality of uh, this controversial subject for my family and other controversial issues for other families 
is that many of us have to choose to play the long game. And Tristan and I are trying the best we know how. I know my mom is trying the best she knows how. Uh, my dad has been a tougher one. Uh, my mom has come to visit, and we'll probably see her again this summer. And I know it's not easy for her because she has a theology that uh, sometimes tells her maybe Tristan and Jeff are going to hell. And for any mother, you have to imagine that that is a really hard thing to confront in your mind. If you really believe that that's a possibility, right? And keeping in mind the love that my mom has for me has really been one of the few things to get me through those difficult moments, to understand that her heart is in such a good place, that she loves me so much. And she writes us and she says, you know, I'm praying for you and for Tristan. I know she prays for us every day, and I will receive those prayers. I need all the prayer I can get. Um, but that gets me through. It's not easy. Uh, this seminary decision has actually been tough as well because they come from a branch of Christianity that says that any seminary that would take me as an openly gay married man would not be theologically sound. So I guess a small part of me thought, oh, I'm going to seminary. Maybe they'll be a little prouder of me. Uh, we're Chinese, so they like the possibility of an extra diploma. <laughs> but... More grades. Also. More grades. Yeah. I do send them my report card, like a good Chinese boy does. <laughs> Which and I assume is 4.0. Uh, the, the, <gasps> we have private okay. privacy right. issues. Yeah. We're not going to talk don't about tell that. On don't the ask, don't tell. Issue. Okay. Yeah. Uh, my brain doesn't work like it used to. And I've tried to learn to let go of the idolatry of grades, which someone only says when they're not getting straight A's. <laughs> but it's been a test, because there is that little boy in me that just wanted to make my parents proud, and to know that this isn't the thing that can do that, and maybe nothing can, is a truth that I have to live with, and I should live with and wrestle with. I hope you don't mind if we just kind of drill down on this a little bit because I think it's one of the hardest things for people who don't regularly uh, interact with, I don't want to, I want to be careful about how I choose my words, but with Christians who hold these views of, 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 of homosexuality um, for us coastal elites, um, people who that's their main exposure, um, their exposure to, to Christianity is simply a sort of stereotype that may sound a little like it rings somewhat true. I think it's very hard for them to understand what it is like to be able to love someone who believes that you are going to hell. Like for me, when and I think this is relevant for for a lot of people right now because I think we talked about a little this when we before we the show, but we're experiencing a moment in American culture when those gaps between beliefs have become exposed. And we have to have relationships with those people anyway. So you're remembering your mother's love, and that's, that sounds great. But in experience, like, what is that like for you? Some days it's rough. And then I'll get up like I did this morning. I was with my family. Um, my grandmother died 
a few weeks ago. So I was with my family uh, for her burial yesterday. And I had a flight out of San Jose at 6.50 this morning. I set my alarm for 5 o'clock. My mom set hers for 4.45 so she could make food for me to take on the plane. I didn't ask for it. And that's just what she does. Mm -hmm. And when I'm eating the noodles and I'm eating the pork buns on the plane, I think about my mom and how much she loves me. It's that act of nourishment from others, the people that in our lives that love us, I think that is the part that's really hard to connect to when you disagree with something, about something so violently. I, I, um, my mother-in-law and I disagree about a lot of things, but I actually have a, I identify so strongly with the idea that but she does the same kinds of things. You know, to, I was visiting them one time and I opened the refrigerator and I saw Anna food, you know, and not literally labeled Anna food, but Diet Coke, stuff that no one else in the family eats, you know, like Diet Coke and yogurt, basically. <laughs> and it's true, though, it sounds trivial, but like that act of like providing something for somebody, like literally being of service is the act of loving someone. And I often think we forget that you don't have to feel love in your heart all the time. Like, you can perform acts of love, and that is what you do maybe when it's hard to feel. When it's hard to feel the emotion of love, you can perform an act of love, which now sounds we're talking about Google search histories again, but um, <laughs> that's not what I meant. So let's, let us try to expand that a little bit, because um, I did make a reference to living in this country today when I think everyone is feeling that our family, our national family, has these, you know, um, chasms of disagreement. I often, you know, catch myself when people ask me how my faith has affected my politics, how it's affected my work. I talk about this as having to love people who I disagree with. And the pushback I get, which is understandable, is like, you know, some of these people want the people that you love to suffer. You know, because I would say I, I love my, my family of humans, you know. Uh, and there is, there are people in this country today who want other humans to suffer. How do we love them? From a distance. <laughs> I think it's really hard sometimes, especially if you don't know anything of those people's humanity. If you only know them as them that you see caricatured on television or in the pages of a newspaper. It's really hard to remember that they are parents who are struggling to feed their kids, or kids who are worrying about whether they'll be loved by their parents, or someone who's trying to get straight C's, or someone who's just trying to make sense of life like we all are. We all suffer from different fears, right? Fear is such a huge driver right now of what's going on in the country. Fear is a driver of some of what my mom thinks about me and Tristan. But fear is also a driver of, at least in part, me going to seminary. Mm -hmm. Fear of not understanding bigger truths that I feel like might be out there. Fear of 
not coming to some greater um, reconciliation with this sense of mystery. That's fear for me. I know there's a lot of fear that drives what I do too. I can't really tell anybody else how to do it because I'm not entirely sure that it makes sense to me, even as I'm saying these things, right? <laughs> uh, I'm trying to convince myself that this is a good way to live. And I, isn't that what we do all, all day, every day? We just get up and try again to make sense of things that don't seem to make sense. And I also think of, about your mentioning playing the long game. I mean, things can feel really immediate, and they are really immediate. I want to remind people at this recording, we're still less than 80 days into the Trump administration. We're all going to die. <laughs> Eventually. Once again, you're trying to out-holy me. It's rude. But um, you, the long game, I mean, I try to keep that in mind too, right? And um, there's a phrase that comes from the rooms of 12-step programs that this is a program of attraction, not promotion, which I've always found it actually to be a best, really good way of describing evangelism too. American evangelism tends not to be that. American evangelism sometimes is more like used car salesmanship. But um, like for me in my journey, the biggest effect, um, the biggest att attraction to to Christ uh, was that I saw people living a life that I, I wanted, right? They, one of my good friends that sort of helped lead me along on this is personally an evangelical Christian. And uh, he told me recently, you know, I always felt bad that I wasn't, you know, giving you the hard sell. <laughs> and I was like, no, you were selling, trust me. Like, you were selling more in a Mary Kay way. Like, don't I look great? No. Um, <laughs> No, I wouldn't, no, it was, but he was using the product, and I wanted that smooth, supple skin, and he, he didn't realize, I think, that how powerful it was for, for me to just see him live his life, see him live his values, and um, for me, it was also to recognize that you could be a person in the world, he's a journalist, um, and not and, and, have a, and have a belief system that was, like, I have to always feel like I'm having to, like, work my way around talking about Christianity a little bit, because I'm still kind of in more of a coastal elite frame of mind about it, but um, that you could be a believer and still write about politics and not sound like a jerk. Um, but, th but that is a long game to say that you live your values and you hope that you attract people to your belief, and we're not in a long game. We're all going to die. <laughs> so you better get saved um, no. are we doing the altar call now or later I've, I've, yeah. I, I, I think we need pragmatists and incrementalists and we need revolutionaries who are calling us to the barricades now I think those skill sets and those callings complement each other we need those justice activists who are saying, we cannot wait. Mm -hmm. And then we need those people who come behind and tend to the wounded souls and uh, comfort the people who need comforting. There are so many jobs to be done on so many levels, so I don't really have time for those people who say there's only one way to respond to the current situation. I choose actually not to use the language of resistance. 
I don't like that language because it centers what I don't want to be centered. Mm. I think love takes many forms and love is such a powerful response and I want to focus myself on that not because I'm good at doing it but because I'm bad at doing it and the more time I think about resisting something the less time I think about who I want to be and am called to be in this world and am not on a daily and hourly basis so yeah I mean even in this room I look around and I think we are all so different right our long game together has to be about identifying the most beautiful differences and doing something good with all of them. Time Magazine would have sucked if they had like <laughs> 10 of me or 10 of you, but I think the fact that even though I was a terrible editor when I was editing your little column, and I want to make a public apology <laughs> for the ways that I savaged your words, it was great that we came from such different backgrounds right. and different worlds. I think it made it better mm -hmm. uh, than it otherwise would have been. Uh, we're going to take a short break. Uh, this is with friends like these. I'm talking to Jeff Chu. You're listening to With Friends Like These with Anna Marie Cox. So I say this a lot, but um, I'm old and have been doing the internet for a long time. I still... I don't like building websites. It's easier than it used to be, but it can be troublesome and time-consuming. So I actually use Squarespace. I used Squarespace before they became a sponsor of the program. I am happy to endorse them right now. Um, because like I said, I've been doing this for a while and I still don't like doing it. If you have no idea how to build a website, you can use Squarespace and it can make your website beautiful. Make your next move, make your next website with Squarespace. Create a beautiful website with the all-in-one platform. There's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. And they provide award-winning 24-7 customer support, which frankly I haven't had to use because it is so easy. But they will help you get your custom domain with an experience that's fully transparent and simple to set up. Squarespace is used by a wide range of creatives, which is a phrase that I don't like, but you know what they mean. They mean like people who don't like work desk jobs, um, but it's also used by other people in businesses where you do work desk jobs and musicians and designers and artists and restaurants and, you know, Etsy crafters. They use Squarespace. So make your next move and lock down your domain and create a website to launch your idea. Use the offer code FRIENDS for 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. Again, that's FRIENDS for 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain with Squarespace. Welcome back to With Friends Like These. Oh, you can do it again, sure. <laughs> you mentioned um, that your grandmother recently passed away. When I asked you about what you wanted to talk about today, you mentioned grief. I've been thinking a lot about grief in the context of what we've been talking about in the country, like the grief that we feel when something we really want to happen doesn't happen, and the grief that we feel when we realize that the relationship that we thought we had with our fellow humans, our fellow Americans, doesn't exist. But there's the grief that exists in this very real way for you right now in this moment, and you have been thinking about how we deal with it with and without our community. So what, do you, what comes to mind? Well, I've been thinking about my grandmother because she was this, uh, depending on whether you count on the Chinese calendar or the American, uh, the Chinese calendar, she was 95. Uh, 
the American calendar. She was 94. She never went to school. She was the sixth of 14, and her mother made her take care of some of her younger siblings, only six of whom made it to adulthood. And my grandmother had this gallows humor, and she said, yeah, if I hadn't been taking care of them, maybe more of them would have lived. When she was a teenager, she was... That's, that's dark. That was my grandmother. That's dark. She was sent to work in a sweatshop, and her mother requisitioned her paycheck. I think that was starting when she was 12 or 13. This was the reality of what it meant to be poor in colonial Hong Kong. And she had a great boss who knew that she had no money because her mother took it. And on Sundays, uh, my grandmother, through her boss's kindness, found other clients uh, to whom she taught knitting. So she would go up to Victoria Peak to these rich women's houses, and they would feed her, and she would teach them how to knit. And that was the money that was her own. That was the little bit of personal empowerment that she had. That's my inheritance, is that story of a powerful woman in a very patriarchal society. And I'm so grateful for that intergenerational community. I don't think we often uh, emphasize how important that is. Learning from our elders, uh, learning from those stories that we often forget to dig up before it's too late. But I've also been thinking about how uh, when we were in Hong Kong for the funeral, uh, the burial was in California, but the funeral was in Hong Kong, uh, we did not know how to grieve together, partly because when we were converted to Christianity, these kind Southern Baptist missionaries told us that we had to stop doing things the old way. They didn't really give us a new way, except in the form of hymns. So we sang Safe in the Arms of Jesus and What a Friend We Have in Jesus in Cantonese. But I remember my mom and aunts and uncles trying to puzzle over, because you don't get a dress rehearsal for a mother's death, how to replace some of the old traditions. There's a a tradition of having a meal together after the funeral service. But in Chinese, The first character means to banish. The second character um, means the dust and debris and suffering of this world. And the third character is meal. Well, that second character comes from Buddhist tradition. And we're Christians, so we don't do that. So now we have no name that we can publicly say for this meal because we don't want to be seen as pagan. We've been told that that is shameful. And what do you do? So I watch my aunts and uncles and my mom spinning their wheels, trying to replace what had been handed down. Like literally the name of the meal that you were having together. What is the, I'm curious, what is the name that if you were not worried about appearing pagan? In Hong Kong, it's called Gai Wai Tan. And so one of my uncles, who's a preacher from the other side of the family, he said, well, we take a word that sounds exactly the same, but comes from Chinese Christian tradition. That means comfort and compassion. Why you can say it the same way. But someone pointed out, if you're saying that at the end of the funeral and inviting everybody back, it sounds the same. It's only in writing that it changes. So that didn't solve anything. So finally, nobody could figure it out. So we just said, we're going to have a meal together after (laughs) 
for anyone who wants to join us. It struck me so powerfully that, that something had been taken away from us in this pro process of zealous conversion. And we weren't given a full, full set of tools to navigate life with. And, and part of faith, part of the utility of faith is that it gives you tools to navigate these milestone moments in life. I've been thinking about, when I think about grief in our country, I mean, it's a very, perhaps a very different conversation, but that idea that we don't have the language and we don't have the rituals. I wonder if that's true for us as a country because we are no longer a country, we've lost faith in many things, including church, right? Like we're no longer really a church-going country. Um, denominations have kind of fallen away. Um, we don't have a common language around faith. And I don't say this with regret. I'm not saying like, and I wish we all were Christian or I believe we should be or anything. I'm just saying that like there, there had been some common rituals and common ways of talking about who we are and we don't have those anymore. And instead we have ideologies. And one ideology, one party, I should be very clear, one party has claimed the church part. And it's, I feel it as a newcomer to the faith because, like, when I tell my friends, and I think this is, I mean, obviously you, have, you can speak to this from um, the perspective of, of trying to reconcile uh, sexuality in, in Christianity, but when I tell my friends, my coastal elite friends, oh, yeah, I became Christian recently, um, which I always do with irony and, like, exactly like I did because it feels weird, like, hey, I've become a Christian. Um, you know, I get the pushback of, like, oh, does that mean, like, so you're going to be voting Republican, or um, I thought you believed in science, um, which you can do both, right? Um, do you feel like people who are, like, I guess, what do you think about this ownership of church and faith by a particular party? I think for those of us who do not identify with that party, it's especially incumbent upon and you do, us. I mean, let me be clear. I do think it's the party and not the ideology that's claimed it. I think that's true. It's part yeah. of the platform and the yeah. rhetoric, right, yeah. of, of, of that party. Uh, it's incumbent on those of us who claim faith but not that party to live our lives even more intentionally, to use a kind of Christianese word, to show that that party doesn't have a monopoly on the public practice of faith. It's an incredibly narrow and American thing to think that right-wing politics and the Christian faith are aligned. Mm -hmm. I was reading some about this when the Dutch just had their election, mm. right? Because uh, they still have left-wing Christian parties, which... People on the radio missed my reaction, like, you know, whoa! <laughs> Mind blown. They also have a party that was rooted in an alliance of communists and Dutch reformed people. Mm. How does that work? In the American context, that sounds incredibly odd, right? But if you think about some of the things that Jesus calls for, allegedly, including caring for the poor, it makes sense. <laughs> including caring for the poor, as though that's like ancillary. Like, <laughs> he also called for caring for the poor. Um, I actually, there was a... Um, sidebar, uh, someone on Twitter, uh, Hamilton Nolan, who's at Fusion now, wrote a piece about a Christian college that tried to use 
um, an argument, a faith-based argument against the formation of a union in their school, um, which, thank, thank God, didn't work. Um, the court, I think, quite rationally recognized that the, the service union doing the cleaning up of, in these dorm rooms had nothing to do with what was happening in uh, the classrooms. And, but he ended the article with, like, Jesus loved the poor assholes. <laughs> and um, I was like, that would be a bumper sticker that I would totally buy and even maybe use. Um, but it's true. Like, I mean, one of the things that attracted me about Jesus was the fact that he loved the poor. And, um, and that it was, it's a radical, egalitarian, communistic anarchist faith, really, when you look at it. Like, I, of course, see that, but that's not the way we learn about it, like, in pop culture, especially. No, and so much of the American brand, especially of evangelical Christianity with the fake Starbucks and the megachurch, <laughs> ends up just being this weird, consumer-minded, capitalistic... Yeah. The used car salesman. Oh, I sh- Yeah, but yeah, non-churchy it's, word. It's insert the, here. <laughs> it's the used car salesman version of evangelism, rather than like the service evangelism. Um, so we're we're we've gone for a little bit now, and um, I was interested in getting questions. Uh, are there are people who are have them? Have them. All right. Let's uh, let's do it. Hi, long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so this one's for Jeff, but Anna Marie could comment on it also. So, oh, believe if, me, like if, I, I, I'm <laughs> counting on it. I will. So the Book of Acts, right? There is this huge God-redefining moment when the Gentiles are let into the faith, and you know it's because the Roman occupation of Israel that that happens. Right? Like, that's the only way that they're going to survive. So it's really a political act disguised as a spiritual one. And, you know, when I was going through my version of um, the pilgrim, the pilgrimage, you know, I was getting a divorce and left evangelical Christianity behind. Like, I, I had to redefine God. And, and, like, I remember that that already had happened once. And I, I just wanted to ask you, do you think it's possible for the culture to redefine God again today. My name's Sam. Thanks for that question. It's interesting to me that, first of all, that you, you put it in acts and that you use the word redefine. Because I think what actually happens, and the way I'm going to answer the question, is in acts, the church begins to get a glimpse of what God was doing all along. If you look at the Gospel of Luke, the precursor to Acts, who is Jesus healing? Whose faith is he constantly recognizing? He's recognizing the faith of women who had been marginalized in that society, and foreigners, Gentiles, people who were not considered acceptable. So likewise, when you say, uh, do we need to redefine God? No, we need to pay more attention to who God already is and what God is already doing. We need to be changing. God isn't what needs to be redefined. There are Pod Save America listeners right now who are like, what? 
This is With Friends Like These with Anna Marie Cox. You know, we wonder where it is that um, Trump could be finding staff for his administration since no one wants to work there. Um, I don't know if he's tried ZipRecruiter. I'm guessing not, because uh, if he had, he probably would be able to fill those positions. Um, He's having a lot of trouble. So, Mr. Trump, Donald, if I can call you that. Mr. President, I'll call you anything. I just know you need staff. And I think you should try ZipRecruiter. If you want to find the perfect hire, you just need to post there. And the job will show up on all the major job sites. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post to 200 plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook. And you may have heard of this one, Twitter, with just a single click. Find candidates in any city or industry, including government, nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. There are no juggling emails or calls to your office, which I know you can't get anyway. Uh, You can quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by Fortune 100 companies and thousands of small and medium-sized businesses, including family ones, I'm guessing. And right now, our listeners, including you, Donald, can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. One more time, because I know, you know, you have a lot of distractions. ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. I just want to say, like, again, the way that I came to my belief had to do with seeing the works of Jesus and deciding, all right, like, even if I can't get fully on board, if I haven't, like, decided what my faith is, what my belief is, these, I can... I can follow these examples. And that was one of pow- a powerful example is the le- you know what he does for the least of these. Like the the caring for the women, the caring for foreigners. Like even if you don't believe, I mean Gandhi the I think apocryphal quote, but I love it. Like I love your Jesus. Your Jesus was a wise man. It's your Christians that I'm not sure about. You know. Um so go back to the source, yeah. Anyway, another question? Um, my name's Hannah, and um, I'm a student at a private Christian university that I will keep confidential. <laughs> I can hold the mic a little bit closer. I can't quite hear okay. you. Okay. Um, yes, yeah, so my name's Hannah, and um, a question that came to mind is uh, both of you were talking about um, loving people well who don't necessarily have your best interests in mind or, or understand you completely, and... Um, one example that I've been struggling with is um, a roommate at school. We were very close, uh, one of my roommates, and once she found out about my orientation, um, told me that we could be friends, but we couldn't be best friends anymore because um, that didn't align with her views. And so I've found it very difficult to want to accept that or be placed in that box. Um, I don't want to grow in hatred towards her, but I also find it very draining to be, um, if you can even call that a friendship now, um, where that label has been established. I think Jeff provided a partial answer to that earlier, which is that we can love people from afar. That wasn't a joke. Yeah, I'm not, yeah I, don't, I don't think it was. I mean, I, I think that the commandment to love people, there was nothing, I don't think there's any kind of writer about, like, with physical proximity. You know, like, you must love, you must love them and keep them within, you know. Or I think that there are some people that can only be loved from afar. 
Um, and I also think that, you know, a, it was a big moment for me, a big realization for me that to realize that love was an action and not a feeling. That, I, that there are people who I do not like in this world who I am commanded to love, but that doesn't mean I have to develop a, a friendship with them. That means I have to act towards them in the way that love commands me to act, which is with uh, humility, um, with service, with an attitude of service, and to remember um, that oftentimes when someone has those kinds of, I mean, I want to be more harsh than say negative feelings towards me, when someone expresses the kind of like fundamental rejection of who I am that this person has done with you, um, I'm not required to love that part of them and also that that says something about what that person is going through or what damage that person has had to their soul and not, not something about me. Are you going to put a touchy-feely trigger warning on this uh, <laughs> podcast? Yes. Uh, no, you know, that sucks. Yeah. I'll just say that, right? That sucks, and I'm sorry. I think one of the most important things you can do in that situation is to tend a little bit to your heart as well and make sure that you know that you are loved, if not in that situation and in that relationship, but elsewhere, and by God, and that you are a beautiful and dignified human being inherently. That is who God has made you. I don't believe that about myself every day. And sometimes you need other people to hold that for you. Uh, the other thing I would say is something that my mom used to say to me um, that kind of piggybacks on what Anna said, which is that my mom used to say to us, me and my sister, I really, really love you, but I do not like you. <laughs> harsh. And to distinguish like between harsh. those things. Yeah, my mother didn't yeah, really uh, go for the self-esteem yeah, thing. Yeah. <laughs> but I think there is power in that distinction mm -hmm. and understanding the spiritual discipline that love is versus the messy reality that is, it is to like someone and to be okay in that tension mm -hmm. and to be okay in the fact that you're pissed off about that and rightly so. Uh, but acknowledge that so that it doesn't control you because if you don't analyze it sometimes, and I say this from personal experience, <laughs> the wound festers and it becomes bigger than you imagined it could be. And, and I want to add something that is... Uh relevant, I think, to your situation and also relevant to some of the larger situation, the larger situation in the country, which is that um, if you have been hurt by somebody, if you especially are been hurt and rejected because of something about who you are, what color, what orientation, you know, what race, what religion you are, um, I don't think it's incumbent upon you to do the work of convincing the other person that they're wrong, right? Um, like, it's not on, like, I actually had this very kind of touching moment. I was, a, I did a speaking engagement somewhere else, and someone came up to me and said, um, you know, I was in the South recently, a person of color said he was in the South recently and had this terrible experience. And he was like, should I have said something to this guy? Because I feel like it might be my responsibility to, like, you know, woke him. <laughs> 
was like, yeah, no. No, that's on us white. That's on the whites. That's on, that's on me. You know, that's on white people. We got to take, we got to, there's a, Kamau Bell has this joke about how white people need to practice respectability politics more. Like, pull up your pants, fellow white people, and... Um, you know, we need to do a little more patrolling of, of racism and other kinds of isms. So I just want to say, like, be sure to know that, too. Like, it's not on you to, to illustrate to this person that they're wrong. Like, that's, that's on other people. Like, you've done enough. You are the beautiful soul that you are. And that's all that you need to be. So. Uh, hi, my name is Jesse. Uh, I grew up in a deeply irreligious household, so forgive my ignorance, Perhaps uh, I'm asking a question uh, to which the answer is fairly obvious. Um, one of the things that when you guys uh, started talking about Jesus, uh, one of the things that it reminded me of was uh, some of the things I heard a lot about uh, with liberation theology. And, uh, you know, some, I believe it was the Jesuits in Latin America. How much, I mean, how much do you find yourselves interacting with, uh, with sort of that ideology? It's for the seminary school student, I think. So I'm just in my second semester. (laughs) I didn't get to that chapter yet. (laughs) Uh, Look, there's something deeply compelling about the idea that Jesus has a preference for the poor and the marginalized, and that part of that is a special set of tools that will free them from particularly pernicious prisons. I respond to that on a very visceral level. I understand the motivations of that. I also see some of the difficult ways in which that has expressed itself, right? And I think one of the important things to remember about all theologies is that they are our attempts to describe different aspects of a super complicated God and a really screwed up planet. Hmm. To try to come into that intersection and say, like, this one system makes sense of it all is just pretty arrogant. So... I want to read more liberation theology, but I also want to read more of all kinds of other theologies because I think so many of them contain glimpses of, of what we ultimately need. Um, there's a writer named uh, Fleming Rutledge. She's an Episcopal priest who's written a beautiful book called The Crucifixion. And uh, all these people have been arguing since basically the time Jesus died about what the mechanism was. What did that do, right? Was he paying for our sins? Was he conquering the devil? What, how exactly did that whole thing work? And one of her, uh, if I understand it correctly, which I might not, second semester. uh, (laughs) Not even getting straight A's. (laughs) One of the beautiful things, thank you, apparently Chinese mother, One of the beautiful things that Rutledge does is she says, which of these is true? Yes. Mm -hmm. Because it is such a complicated thing that we need all these different thinkers to help us see it from different angles. And I think that's awesome. Thank you. Hi. Hi. John John Lovett, co-host Positive America. (laughs) 
You didn't uh, put on any entrance music. I hardly recognized. I'll add it in post. I can, I can deal with it in post. Um, uh, first of all, we, wa- we worship an awesome God in the blue states, so how dare you, uh, for your attack on Pod Save America. But um, I had a question about confrontation. So I hear a lot of understanding, um, you know, how to love people that you disagree with, but why shouldn't she tell her roommate, hey, why don't you go fuck yourself? You know, why don't you, why don't you take your bullshit opinion and keep it to yourself? Um, I don't have to deal with you. Like, wh- where does confrontation fit into this worldview? When does it have a place? Because it can't just be about understanding. Yeah. Um, I think that that is also an appropriate response. I think... <laughs> I, I think that you can love someone and tell them to go fuck themselves at the same time, both. Um, surely I have done that. Um, and again, like, sort of love is an action. I think that... I, I do think, like, in, you know, the 12-step programs, we talk about letting someone hit bottom... And we also talk about uh, um, detaching with love. And I do think that drawing a boundary can be a form of love. You know, I mean, you, personally, again, like, I, you might regret later saying go fuck yourself. So I don't want to endorse that. But um, I don't think it's a necessary, like, it's not a wrong action necessarily. Again, like, there is something to be said for drawing a boundary and letting someone know how you feel. Like that can be a powerful, that can be powerful too. And letting someone know like you, you, you know, like that's not gonna work for me anymore and our relationship is different now. Which is a nicer way of saying maybe, you know. But every once in a while, wouldn't you say that there are people who are in a place where they need the jolt of a go fuck yourself? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Like I know, we all know some, right? But you need to be smart about it, right? right? Deploy that weapon pragmatically. That is, sometimes you call it going nuclear. Um, but I, I, Mitch McConnell can go fuck himself. <laughs> she says in love. I, I mean, I do think it's, I mean, it's also like no one's perfect, right? Like, if so if that is your response to something... It's your response to something. Like we, it 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 can be reexamined later. You can th- think about whether or not that was something that you regret or don't regret. Um, I that, what the, what I was trying to say about letting someone hit their bottom. You can hit their bottom for them, I guess. You know, like, push them to their push bottom. them to their bottom. Um, and hopefully, yeah, that someone would hear that. Like the the worry of the pragmatist part is like, if you say that, do, does that person you're speaking to hear it? You know. Um, sometimes that is the only way to get through. Uh, and I, I think that, you know, Jeff was talking about the role of pragmatists versus the role of revolutionaries. Like, I mean, I, I also don't think we're always one or the other. Um, you know, I have in my life people who have, you know, family members who've said things in front of me that are incredibly troubling. I'm going to try and be like, diplomatic in describing this. And it is really hard to make that judgment call right there. To say, like, do you shut the fuck up? Like, don't say that around me. You're insulting my friends. Or don't say that around me because you insulted me. You know? Um, And it's a judgment call. I mean, I have to say, like, sometimes my temper gets away with, you know, gets away from me. But I also know that in that relationship, that's, 
usually in the long term going to be a mistake. You know, but there is a place for it, especially to Mitch McConnell, so, yeah. <laughs> and her roommate. If you want me to call your roommate, <laughs> like, I'll do that for you. Like, you have to live with her, right? So, pragmatist, she might be able to, but, like, I'll do it, yeah. <laughs> More? We got time. Hi, my oh. name's Alana. Hi. Hi. Um, so we've kind of heard two sort of polar opposite examples of how you can respond when you're confronted with someone who has a very different view than you. You know, sort of the love and acceptance or go fuck yourself. Um, but, you know, my question is, are there any good ways or what good ways are there to kind of start that conversation and try to find common ground? Especially because, you know, this conversation is uncomfortable for me. Um, I find that many times people who hold strong beliefs, they have what, what you were talking about of that idea of um, sort of one truth and not being open to multiple possible truths and thinking only theirs is right, therefore yours is wrong. So, you know, what ways are there to approach that so you can start to have a conversation? Yes, I believe that there are. There is a middle ground between I love you and go fuck yourself. And that is the, the ground most of us live in, right? Really. And I actually do think there are practical... I've, I've thought a lot about this. Um, the practical suggestion I have to you actually sort of comes to me from uh, the reporting toolbox, which is, why do you feel that way? It is amazing what you get from people when you just ask them why. Like... Someone says something incredibly objectionable, some kind of ist, right? Homophobic or racist or sexist. If, if you can, as, and if I, that's happened to me as a reporter, like, and, I've been, and I'm in a place where I can't really say go fuck yourself because I need to find out more. Later, maybe, but in the moment, like, the, the question, why do you feel that way, is a respectful question. People will respond to you with respect usually. And there's this amazing thing about human nature. We are naturally social and empathetic creatures. And I have found time and again, when I ask someone, why do you feel that way? And I give them all the room in the world to respond. They will then ask me, well, what, what, what do you think? And, you know, I mean, you can... That's maybe the place for say, like, I completely reject you. No, but, or you can say, like, well, you know, this is my experience. And that is another powerful, like, practical suggestion to say, well, I can tell you what I think, but also this is my experience, you know? Because um, people tend to hear experiences in a different way than they hear opinions. And they will take that story with them wherever they go and tell it to other people. It might be like, I met this crazy liberal chick, and she told me this, but, it, but I've, seen, I've heard it happen. I've had it repeated back to me. I think we really struggle with the art of conversation, right? I, I think that's, I don't know, some people have said we lost it, but then I wonder, did we ever really have it? Did we ever really master that? And I think one of the things that journalism has given me is because I was afraid of coming back to my editor with nothing, you learn to listen in a way that I never learned to listen in school, 
it was really on the job that I learned how to do that. I find that even when I'm in a classroom setting now, and I'm not in journalist mode, I have a tendency to try to be thinking of the next thing I want to say. And to stop myself, and to listen to the person, and to ask a question that actually a theologian, a practical theologian uh, at Western Seminary named Teresa Latini taught me to ask, which is when someone's answering your question, to ask yourself, what am I hearing that is important to that person? Not what am I hearing, because when you just say what am I hearing, sometimes you impose what you want to hear. But to ask yourself the question, what is important to that person? What is important in those words? That has been a really transformative tool in my journalism as well as in my fights with my husband. Um, and a tip from my fights with my husband um, is giving up on being right. I mean, and that's not to say I'm not right. <laughs> but that is to say that I can't make that the point of the conversation, is convincing him that I'm right. I have to let him just learn to cut, learn it. Like, no. Um, but if you, if you come into a conversation, like, I'm just going to convince this person, uh, people sense that. <laughs> We're sensitive creatures as well as empathetic and social. And if you just come, if you come into the, the conversation with the attitude of, why do you feel this way? I want to understand. Um, that is itself often kind of a lesson, especially to someone, if you're talking to someone who has, like, stereotypical views of whatever it is that you are, you being interested in his or her story, but usually his, I'm guessing, um, like, is a, will be a weird thing. Like, wait, okay, like, I'm used to being listened to, but I'm not used to, like, the stereotype that I, whatever I have, like, you know, it'll, it's helpful to, have, to, to push back against that. Um, again, like, I feel like those are, the humility that comes in listening, um, in wanting to understand is the kind of action of love that we are called to in this world, I believe. When it's not, it doesn't have to be a feeling. You don't have to like, you do not have to like this person. I sometimes say that I'm in like the reality show version of like recovery. I'm not here to make friends. Um, it's been real helpful. Hi, my name is Susan. You all talked a little bit about rituals and meaning making um, coming from religious traditions or what. It seems like in this moment in the country, political actions, um, protests and whatnot have somewhat stepped in to fill that gap and people have been finding each other in that. Do you see that as a positive thing? Do you see any concerns with that? Or could you just speak to what's going on when people are coming out and engaging in that way? protest isn't just the new brunch, it's the new church. I think anytime we come together on a regular basis, like we are creating community and creating some kind of ritual, definitely. And if that is, can, if, if people can incorporate that into their lives, I think almost all kinds of community building are helpful. I mean, if you're wearing white robes and hoods, probably not, but in those communities, let's be real, those communities are actually building too, right? So I hope that people are finding community and finding ritual in, I, I'm not as wary of using the word resistance, um, in opposition, in, um, in whatever it is that we're doing to keep fascism out of the country. 
Um, I hope people are finding ritual and community in that. I also hope that the places that we have ritual and community, our churches, are finding their ways into protest. I think it's actually amazing over the last couple of months the way people have gathered, for instance, around the confirmation hearings. Mm -hmm. And town halls. On Twitter at the same time, uh, calling in to listen to the oral arguments about the travel ban. There's been something new and phenomenal in the way that people are paying attention. And I hope we don't lose that because the investments that people are making in the process of democracy, that kind of warms my dorky heart. Yeah. And I think it's going to make the country better for all of us that we see that as part of our responsibility, those rituals, participating in those rituals. And I think social media, as frustrating as it often is, has helped us gather around those things. Uh, it's a place for us to talk about those things and process them together. Yeah. Let's do one more question. All right. Hi. Hey. I'm Brandon. Thank you both for um, living in your respective intersections because uh, I know it's your life and you're used to it by now, but for people who are just getting there, it's not an easy thing to do. So thank you for being that example. Um, also, uh, thank you for having this. This is amazing. I love things that kind of make me uncomfortable a little bit because I know in that discomfort is really where the work is and that means we're actually doing something that might turn into something good. This is a question for both of you, and it's around the idea of alignment with uh, the GOP and uh, the Christian faith, and what do you think is required to not make that so monopolized? I don't think it is monopolized, and I think we're seeing that more and more. I think it requires us to listen to the reality as opposed to focus on the stereotype. If we look at the reality of faith and what people are doing in the world, we'll see, for instance, that so many churches are helping to house and welcome refugees. And so many churches are working to feed people, defying ridiculous local bans on feeding programs. And so many churches are raising money and providing shelter for LGBTQ youth who have been kicked out of their homes. And they're being, to be super Christianese about it, the hands and feet of Jesus. Sometimes those stories aren't told, and that's unfortunate, but yeah, I just want to reiterate, it's happening on the ground, and I'm so thankful for it. I wouldn't be here. Honestly, I don't think I would be physically alive if not for a church in Brooklyn that gave me a spiritual home at a time when I was wondering whether there was a God. That's not our GOP church. That's just the church. I guess the only thing I would add is that it's, this comes back a little bit to the idea of how do we talk to people that we don't necessarily agree with or who may reject us, is that you look for shared values rather than shared policies or you look for shared um, policies that may not even necessarily need to exact same values. Um, I've recommended to people who ask me about doing service work, like, have you considered 
you know, the church in your neighborhood as a place to go? Because I, I have been telling everyone who asks me how to get through this next four years that it is going, service work is, the, is going to be key. And it's not just about going to rallies and calling your congressman. It's about feeding the hungry. It's about being of service to the homeless. It's about, and, and the churches are still on the front lines of that. And you don't have to agree with everything that's happening in that church to, be, to, to, use, to use that organization as a way of being of service. And I'm just thinking, we didn't talk about this, but I, it, I've been thinking about it a lot, which is what's going on at the Southern Baptist Convention um, with Russell Moore, who is the head of their... Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Ironically, Religious Liberty, they sneak that in there. Um, and, but he's, he's gotten... He, there, there are Southern um, Baptist churches that are refusing to pay the dues for membership because he was anti-Trump. And I don't, I've interviewed Russell Moore, and there are areas where we disagree a lot, um, mainly around like gay marriage, around you know, uh, the choice issue. Um, uh, but he is on the forefront of racial reconciliation, um, immigration, uh, refugees. If, I, I hope that he can gain strength from people in his, his congregations who can stand with him on that, even if they can't stand with him on everything else, but. Let's make messy coalitions where we need to. Yeah. Here's to messiness. Thank you guys. You're listening to With Friends Like These with Anna Marie Cox. So the world is complicated. Um, There are all kinds of alliances we can make. There are all kinds of things we can pay attention to. But you know what is not complicated? Is SeatGeek. It used to be complicated to buy tickets to sporting events. Who do you buy from? Where is Where are the tickets? Do you print them out? Do you save them? But SeatGeek is the smartest and easiest way to get tickets to live events. With SeatGeek's seamless mobile experience, you can buy and sell tickets in just two taps. SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. And there is nothing quite like seeing your favorite team or musician or, let's just say, podcast in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action at a great value. Now, I have the SeatGeek app on my phone, and it is by far the easiest, and I actually mean that. I had to read the first part, but I do have it on my phone, and it is the easiest way to shop for tickets. Um, I can go anywhere, do anything, um, and if I have a whim to be distracted from the news of the day um, by something relatively uh, uplifting and entertaining, I can find something on SeatGeek, um, whether it's the Twins or a concert here uh, in Minneapolis or, you know, on the road. Actually, that's something I hadn't really thought about doing. But I realize now that in my travels, um, if I get fed up with um, dealing with, you know, all this shit we're dealing with, I can always use SeatGeek. And you get the most bang for your buck. SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed, and you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Make SeatGeek your go-to app for finding the best deals on every type of ticket, from sports and concerts to comedy and theater, and again, perhaps someday, live podcast events. Best of all, my listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app and enter the promo code FRIENDS today. That's promo code FRIENDS for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. 
So um, welcome to the show, Rick Wilson. Good to be back. Erstwhile Republican, we'll say. Um, All-time conservative. um, Friend of the pod. Um, And I I wanted to have you on because, like, I mean, I guess every week is what the fuck week um, when it's not leadership week. (laughs) But um, this has been... If it's not what the fuck week, it's, oh, dear God, are we all going to die in a sea of radioactive flame? I, I know. Like, do we – I'm looking up fallout shelters recently. Like, the, here in the Midwest, <laughs> good, prudent Midwesterners, they, they, they built them. So I'm, I'm hoping to find one or two uh, before it's too late. And, of course, I have my gun. I just need to have some brush up on how to use it. Um, and I, to be fair, it's, it's a shotgun. It's not a handgun. Um, and, That's all right. And it's uh, – only to protect me from the radioactive, you know, hordes. Um, the mutant horde. Yeah. The mutant horde that will inevitably befall on us because we're going to go to war with somebody. Um, right. And our, and, our, and our blasted Mad Max hellscape that we'll all have to subsist in after. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I've always been a Glenn Beck fan. I never realized, like, um, I'm just going to start, I'm going to start buying some gold and seeds. Um, we've all become preppers now. I mean, this was a joke we, people were making after the election happened, and it's just sort of become more and more real. But let's sort of get into why, right? I mean, I guess from your joking, sure. I, I assume that you two have, have seen the events unfold over the past week, and it's not comforting but alarming to see Trump take this sort of random walk around diplomacy. Correct. It is. It is a... It is a moment that that I think has terrified uh, his 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 alt right base and the rest of his base, where they thought he was different from Obama and different from Bush. He was going to you know, put America first and withdraw from these these overseas adventures. And suddenly he's now you know a full on raging globalist, ready to reset relations with China, the hated enemy, just weeks ago. And it just—it's it, frankly a sign of how undisciplined Trump's sort of mental landscape is, and how easily influenced he is by by, by smallish uh, changes in, in 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 the landscape, and how quickly he's he's able, without breaking a, a sweat, to move on to the next the next diametrically opposed topic that uh, you know that, that was wholly writ the week before, and is now oh what what I forgot all about that yeah. You know, Things like resetting the China as a currency manipulator, and you know we're friends with Russia. I love you. I hate you, Putin. I love you. I hate you. You know all this <laughs> stuff back and forth. It, it is something that, that has ratcheted up the anxiety of Americans because most folks don't view Donald Trump as a particularly stable kind of guy. Right. And I wanted what I wanted to get you on is to talk about the reactions among conservatives to this because you know there was this initial war, wargasm. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. when he shot the Tomahawk missiles at Syria that both, I think, conservative and, you know, would be or sometimes titularly liberal commentators, you know, got their, you know, um, hard ons about. And mm-hmm. but but, you know, and I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on Syria or say I know what we should do, but that was right. alarming because of the speed with which he made that decision, right? I mean, do, do conservatives recognize that? Like even people who supported him doing it? Because I, I'm I'm seeing this weird reaction on the right or some of the right where I, I see this, I see people, I think 
they're so hungry to think of him as normal, to think of him as like maybe he'll turn out to be okay. They're looking at some of this stuff and thinking, oh, no, this is a good sign. Yeah, I mean, the, the, that, that's, and I think that's definitely part of it is, is Washington has been desperate to see a pivot to something that they could understand and relate to. And, and so basically adopting the sort of foreign policy consensus view that Assad is a bad guy and, and we ought to do something about it. You know, whether somewhere in that spectrum of uh, was, was the, the left, somewhere between the left and right spectrum on that question was, you know, Assad's a bad guy, we ought to do something about it. Just the week before, um, Tillerson, et cetera, were all sending signals that, yeah, Assad was okay, but yeah, you know, we don't have a much better option, so we'll leave him in place which was not a consensus, and that was making people in Washington, again, on both sides of the aisle, go, wait a minute, this is cuckoo. Um, and, and, you know, I think it partly reflects the diminished fortunes of Steve Bannon inside the administration, who, who believes that, you know, Assad is this defender of, of, the, of Christian Syrians and, a, and an ally against ISIS and al-Qaeda, um, which you know is a is a is a tentpole Syrian propaganda, which is you know. But I think that I think that um, that, that, that it does reflect Bannon's diminished fortunes, and it's it's a sense in Washington of oh please do anything normal, act like a regular president for three minutes, just don't tweet crazy shit for one day, and 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 we'll give you another chance. But it, underneath that, of course, is the is the knowledge and the fear that it could all go you know sideways at any moment. We could take go to you know, crazy tweet town at any second of the day. Right. And I, and let's talk about Bannon for a second. I mean, there are a lot of people also that I think are, again, grasping for normalcy. This tendency, especially in the Washington establishment, to just want to be able to think of the president as our leader, right? Like there's this like thirst. Mm -hmm. There is an authoritarian impulse in Washington, kind of like we want to be able to trust our leader. We need to be able to trust our leader. So they're looking for good signs. And there's this idea that, oh, OK, well, Bannon's out. We can all breathe a sigh of relief. Now, I'll tell you what I think, which is mm -hmm. that maybe they'll be less obviously white nationalist. Like, that's, I guess, good, you know, but I'm not sure, you know, and maybe I don't know, like, I'm not sure if it means anything, you know, substantially, because we still have at the center of it all. This man, and I actually am talking about Trump here and not Kushner, we have in the yeah. man, at the center of it all, we have a man with, <laughs> with, with no fixed beliefs. And even oh, if his... I, I, wrote about, I wrote about this this week in the Daily Beast, where I essentially said you know, that it, it, Ralph Waldo Emerson said that an institution is the lengthened shadow of one man. And that shadow here is Trump. That the, the, the definitional characteristics of this administration are all from Donald Trump. They're all about... The, the type of person Donald Trump is in, in his own mental landscape. And so you will still have, even if Kirshner and the Goldman guys are in ascendancy right now, there is no, there is no moment where Trump can't immediately turn on a dime and just say, no, I'm going to go back to my, my, you know, whatever my impulse of the moment is, because we've seen that happen. That's, that's the, that's the defined pattern of behavior that we've observed over time with Donald Trump. He is an impulsive figure. He is an impulsive character. He, he is not a stable person when it comes down to to having a fixed set of ideological moorings and a and a and a and a and a, and a sort of managerial process where he he behaves a certain way over time and that way is is stable and predictable. He is driven by his own sort of strange needs in his ego and his brain and 
and his, his desire to be liked and, and adored. And those things shape how he behaves, but those things aren't normal Washington or American uh, behavior that people can say, oh, I feel confident he's doing this, you know, because he's got a plan. No, they feel like he's doing this, doing things because he has impulsive emotional reactions. And, you know, call me crazy, but uh, a guy with impulsive emotional reactions and nuclear weapons and the, and the awesome might of the American military, it all kind of makes me feel a little queasy sometimes. Yeah, and I, I just it, it frightens me to put all of our faith and hope in a 36-year-old and not very successful New York landlord. You know, I mean, yeah, I mean, the the the, the now that Jared Kushner has been named ambassador uh, of, of everything and 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 czar of the entire federal government, you know, it, it does call, call to mind, you know, what are his actual qualifications? He inherited his dad's real estate business and married Donald Trump's daughter. Mm. Those are the two things that distinguish Jared Kushner. He is not, a, a, you know, a, a foreign policy or domestic intellect or thinker. He is not somebody with a with a wide scope of of, of outside accomplishments, and, and you know, look, if you put Jack Welch or Tim Cook or some other CEO of a mega corporation into this job, um, without experience and background and support and training and 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 years of actually doing the things that would be required to you know reform government and, and rebuild you know, the, the American economy, you're going to get the same result you'll get with Kushner, which is death of a thousand cuts, small failures over and over again. And, and, and I think there's another thing people are missing. Trump requires his presence all the time. He's like a safety blanket for Trump, a security blanket for Trump. And it's, it's interesting to me how frequently, you know, Jared has to be by his side in every meeting. And you're starting to see like some pushback out of the National Security Council, other people saying, you know, we can't run every single talking point past Jared every day, but Trump wants us to. So uh, I think the guy is being set up to fail, not deliberately, but it's, it's, it's almost inevitable that a guy in this situation is not going to be able to meet the expectations that Trump is setting uh, without, without some sort of you know, political or other miracle occurring. So I have two thoughts. One is my a crazy conspiracy theory thought, but I'm going to say it anyway, which is because what are these what are these podcasts for except for some somewhat crazy conspiracy theories, which is that sometimes I do look at Trump and see, you know, I had my, my mother um, at the towards the end of her life went through dementia and damn it, like that security blanket thing, like that's something that people with dementia mm-hmm. do. Uh, like, yeah. <laughs> oh no. I mean, I don't want to believe it, and that's like just nuts. And I'm not a doctor, and no one who's not a doctor should make diagnosis. And especially, actually, Trump's <laughs> own doctor probably shouldn't make a diagnosis because that guy is nuts. Um, doctor weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> but He's I, a full case. He is. Um, he he reminds me of the doctor that I got all my fun drugs from when I was doing those sorts of things. <laughs> but um, uh, the other thing I wanted to say about Kushner and the death of a thousand cuts and being set up to fail is that you know everyone is like doing this sort of palace intrigue um, calculus about. Kushner is, of course, going to win whatever, you know, gun battles happening with Bannon because Kushner's blood and, and Trump is loyal. But people forget Trump fucks over family members, too. Sure. Convenient. Trump cut his own nephew off of medical coverage um, just because he was pissed off at the guys at, at, at his brother. And this is not a, he, Trump is not a good guy. <laughs> and, and, and yes, Jared right now is ascendant. But the minute it doesn't look like it's like, like it's the Trump show. 
I think Jared's in trouble. I think that's inevitable that, that, that you, you're around Trump, you always have to sleep with one eye open and have a poison taster. Mm-hmm. So you're not, you know, surprised by the, the, the almost inevitable betrayal that is a, is a hallmark of all things Trump. I mean, I think it's possible. He's not, a, he's not an honest guy. Trump's <laughs> just not an honest guy with anybody. No, and he will fuck over anyone he does business with. I think the only person that might be safe is Ivanka. Maybe, maybe Ivanka. Right. Because I don't. Maybe, well, let's not get into the psychology of that. But I, yeah, I'm not I'm right. I just I was just saying I, I prefer not to play amateur psychiatrist on that one because it just makes me want to have a shower. In think about it. Um, so. but, but everyone else, but no one else is safe. And I think we're seeing that actually also play out with the Syria thing. Right. Like if Russia thought they were going to be the one you know, entity that could do business with Donald Trump and walk away unscathed, like, well, they, you know, <laughs> like he's not afraid I, I to fuck this, over I anyone. This, I say this all the time. There is no better Donald Trump. There is no version of Donald Trump where he behaves like a normal, decent human being. It is always the Trump show is always about him. It's always impulsive and weird and psychologically, you know, shady in some fundamental ways. And no one should expect. To, to get a different outcome. I know a guy that did some business with him, uh, a developer who did some business with him at one point, and the guy said, you know, even with your eyes wide open all the time, you, 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 and you, even when you know he's going to try to fuck you, um, you know, he's still very charming and he still works really hard at, at being very charming. But he said, you know, after a point, this is why people don't do business with the guy. Mm-hmm. This is why he's always got a new partner in every development scheme. He's always got a new a new bank coming along over the years because everybody eventually learns you can't trust him and you can't really make a deal with this guy. He will change the terms even after the contract is, is executed. It's just not a good, it's just not a good, uh, you know, way to live, but it's also, it catches up with you. If you fuck over your business partners enough times, you don't get business partners anymore. So I'm almost afraid to ask you this, but like, let's play this forward a bit. Um, I mean, I do think it's totally a possibility that Jared found, finds himself on the way out. People also forget Jared's not only been a member of the inner circle for a relatively brief amount of time, right? Like he sure. was just kind of like the son-in-law until he came on the campaign and, and like decided he was interested in it. Um, so yes. I, I can envision us, make, you know, so right now we're at hashtag President Kush- Kushner. I can envision hashtag President Tiffany at some point, because he'll just work his way <laughs> down the you know down the family hierarchy until he gets to Tiffany. But what I've also heard, though, that one, and maybe you can back this up, but because my contacts in D.C. Are, are somewhat tenuous, but people are, are refusing or just not taking jobs at this White House or with this administration. Like um, that is absolutely correct. Um, the, the people that ordinarily would be putting their names out there. For these, for these positions are, are staying home in droves. Um, the people that are otherwise unemployable uh, in, in the sort of Republican universe, um, you know, the, the, the cat and dog weirdos and, and people <laughs> with, a, with a bad track record um, are flocking there. But even that's not really working out because Trump is so, micro, so much a micromanager and so obsessively about controlling uh, his image that he's making, you know, it, these people have to go through a process that's way beyond even the normal appointment hassles. And being an appointee, is, and I was a junior appointee in the first Bush administration, blah, 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 in the 41. 
it's a pain in the ass. It's a lot of work. I mean, it is a, it is a, it is a big deal and you have to go through a lot of hoops and, you know, people that are not inclined to go through all those hoops and who don't want to be, you know, run through the, the ringer of dealing with the Trump team and the Trump people, uh, you know, are just, stay, like I said, they're staying away in droves. There's another part of this is if you take one of those jobs, you hope that you'll have some influence over policy and, 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 and you hope that you'll have some, some ability to change the direction of things. And most of these folks in the, in the cabinet level offices aren't going to have that. This is the Trump show. Mm-hmm. This is all about Donald Trump. And, and if they don't realize that, they'll, they'll realize it soon enough when they get a one piece of PR or press that he would want, and then they're on their way out. I mean, I so know, one day they're great, and the next day they're a, they're a goat. And I want to be clear about this, which is that um, when you're talking about the hoops and hurdles to get a job in the Trump administration, you're not talking about anything like financial or ethical vetting. You're talking about no, I'm talking about personal. People don't vetting. want to work with. People don't want to work with crazy people. Right. And, and, the, and, the, and the vet or the, and the hurdles and hoops to get a job in the Trump administration are basically that he has to approve of you personally. And that's the micromanaging. It's not the micromanaging. Yes. It's not the micromanaging of the kind that he wants to be involved in decisions. It's just a personality and loyalty test. Right. And there have been a lot of people who who would be perfect fits for jobs and would be willing to take them. But they said one thing about Trump that wasn't gushing praise during the campaign and then they're out. So, I you mean, know. again, it's 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 folly. We, we're not in the prediction business. My my colleagues, you know, at Podsave have have declared us all out of the um, prediction business. But I do try to play this forward just a little bit. And besides getting to President Tiffany, you know, an empty State Department, you know, the echoing halls of the State Department. Like, mm-hmm. what what's what do you think is on the horizon? I mean, this is like this is, seems unsustainable. You can't manage uh, an administration. You can't manage a government. Let's say this: uh, out of with, with 2.9 million employees scattered across this wide, wide world of ours, with a half a dozen people that you trust in the White House, it can't be done. It is. It is. There is one thing that that every president learns: it's the vital importance of having a strong chief of staff who can help you guide policy and 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 priorities across the administration. You can't do it all from the White House. You have to have trusted people that you can rely on inside the inside the various agencies. And that, that doesn't mean you micromanage them from the top. That means you you pick people who understand the general ideological and political and and, prior, and, and legislative direction you want to take the country. And because Trump is so random and so centered on his own show, the, the, that's impossible right now. You don't have anybody strong enough in the White House to control all this stuff. Jared doesn't have, no matter how much Trump loves him, Jared doesn't have the experience or the bandwidth to do it. Mm-hmm. Reince Priebus is a nice guy. He's a lovely man. But he is so overmatched by, this, by the crazy he has to deal with every day that you know, he, can't, he can't do it. And if you don't have people out in the, in the, in the administration, there's a couple thousand significant political jobs uh, that are appointed. And there are, uh, gosh, like, uh, Ten or eleven thousand, what they call Schedule C jobs, which are younger younger people in lower level positions. They're still important to have. There's, those are the young guys um, who go out and, and young guys and girls who go out in the in, in administration. They work in the you know the, the legislative assistant jobs and the P public affairs jobs and all these things. And without them, you don't have that like upward flow of information to the White House. So things surprise you. Um, 
and, and so you, and you can't deploy things and get things done and deal with Congress as effectively. So this is a, it's a big mess, and they don't understand why the mess is, is, is there. But the mess is there because it's, you know, Trump is a disorderly thinker. And disorderly thinkers do not execute on building out organizations that support their agenda. They just, you know, they, they, everything's random. Everything's contingent. Everything's of the moment. So it's hard to even, if we even were in the prediction business, it would be almost impossible to say, like, what was ha- would happen. I mean, I think I can't even imagine it, you know. I'm afraid. No, I, look, we have yet to face an actual national crisis. That's what keeps me up at night, okay? We've yet to face an actual crisis where he has to make a decision, not in hours or days or weeks, but in minutes, mm. uh, where, it's, where it's meaningful and consequential and, and you know, might have something to do with the survival of our country. And because he hasn't faced that now or, or at any point in his life, it's, it, it, that keeps me awake. Mm-hmm. I'm not, not even, not exaggerating. That's the thing that makes me lay awake and I go, oh, shit. Now what? So it's, it, and it should. It, it should. We're in, a, we're in a fairly dangerous world right now, and there are plenty of crazy people with, with, with the anticipation that Trump is irrational, and so they're going to ratchet up. I mean, he's he's a perfect foil for the North Koreans because they, you know they've always described us as the crazy Yankee imperialist lunatics, and you know he's acting just like their PR against us. He's acting just like their propaganda against us. Not the best place to be, in my in my opinion. And on that note, um, we'll be looking for gold and seed sponsors for the show, and. You know, everyone familiarize yourselves with any kind of like home defense mechanisms that you would like. And you know what? I've always been saying, pray them if you got them. That's what's working for me at night. So on that note, Rick, I hope we are around next week, um, perhaps to chat with you some other time. I would love that. Thank you for having me. And uh, and remember, your, your portfolio of investing in gold, ammunitions, and canned goods is perfect <laughs> for the coming apocalypse. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Rick. Thanks, Anna. I'll talk to you soon. Well, that's it for our show. I think today um, we managed to cover a lot of the different things that With Friends Like These is supposed to do. Uh, Because it's not just a conversation like the Never Trumper of the Week, although we did have our Never Trumper of the Week. It's a conversation about alliances um, and relationships and the way that politics complicates relationships and relationships complicate politics. And I think we got to a lot of that today. If you have suggestions for other kinds of conversations or topics we should tackle, you can tweet at us at crooked underscore friends, or you can write us at withfriendslikepod at gmail.com. Again, that's withfriendslikepod at gmail.com. And of course, if you want to follow up with either of today's guests, they are both uh, Twitter presences. Uh, Jeff Chu is at Jeff Chu. That's J-E-F-F. C-H-U. And Rick Wilson is at the Rick Wilson, not to be confused with people who are not the Rick Wilson. He is the only the Rick Wilson. Uh, I am at AnnaMarieCox.com um, and I'm often on the Twitter machine uh, doing stuff that has to do with either politics or cute animals. Come for the cute animals, stay for the politics. Uh, this has been with friends like these. Thank you so much for making it to the end of the show. And we'll be back uh, next week. Bye now. <laughs>